Once again, it is Black Clock Audio Tales. We are in our final week of Edgar Allan Poe in the final week of January. Ooh. Check out our schedule in the show notes to find out what next month will be for Black Clock Audio Tales and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Also check out Articulate Warbling with Zach Ferguson and also Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, which will be coming out by the end of this month. So, hey, check out that, wait for that, look for that. Here we go, Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 5 of Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, don't get cold. Bunny slippers, dino sound slippers, s'more slippers, sports slippers, sci-fi, fantasy, cute critters, all kinds of cool stuff. And don't forget about found item clothing, cool shirts from your favorite cult films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You want to dress like Booger? You want to dress like Styles from Teen Wolf and wear a t-shirt that says, what are you looking at? Dino's? You can do that. Found item clothing. And remember, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and pgttcm.com. Look for us, pgttcm.com, Black Clock Audio Tales, and here you go with Edgar Allan Poe. All right, let's start. Read by Bob Neufeld. Philosophy of Furniture by Edgar Allan Poe. In the internal decoration, if not in the external architecture of their residences, the English are supreme. The Italians have but little sentiment beyond marbles and colors. In France, meliora probant deteriora secuntur. The people are too much a race of gadabouts to maintain those household priorities of which, indeed, they have a delicate appreciation, or at least the elements of a proper sense. The Chinese and most of the Eastern races have a warm but inappropriate fancy. The Scotch are poor decorists. The Dutch have, perhaps, an indeterminate idea that a curtain is not a cabbage. In Spain they are all curtains, a nation of hangmen. The Russians do not furnish. The Hottentots and Kickapoos are very well in their way. The Yankees alone are preposterous. How this happens it is not difficult to see. We have no aristocracy of blood, and having therefore as a natural and indeed as an inevitable thing fashioned for ourselves an aristocracy of dollars, the display of wealth has here to take the place and perform the office of the heraldic display in monarchical countries, by a transition readily understood, and which might have been as readily foreseen, we have been brought to merge, in simple show, our notions of taste itself. To speak less abstractly, in England, for example, no mere parade of costly appurtenances would be so likely, as with us, to create an impression of the beautiful in respect to the appurtenances themselves, or of taste as regards the proprietor. This, for the reason, 
first that wealth is not in england the loftiest object of ambition as constituting a nobility and secondly that there the true nobility of blood confining itself within the strict limits of legitimate taste rather avoids than affects that mere costliness in which a parvenu rivalry may at any time be successfully attempted the people will imitate the nobles and the result is a thorough diffusion of the proper feeling but in america the coins current being the sole arms of the aristocracy their display may be said in general to be the sole means of the aristocratic distinction and the populace looking always upward for models are insensibly led to confound the two entirely separate ideas of magnificence and beauty in short the cost of an article of furniture has at length come to be with us nearly the sole test of its merit in a decorative point of view and this test once established has led the way to many analogous errors readily traceable to the one primitive folly there could be nothing more directly offensive to the eye of an artist than the interior of what is termed in the united states that is to say in appalachia a well-furnished apartment its most usual defect is a want of keeping we speak of the keeping of a room as we would of the keeping of a picture for both the picture and the room are amenable to those undeviating principles which regulate all varieties of art and very nearly the same laws by which we decide on the higher merits of a painting suffice for decision on the adjustment of a chamber a want of keeping is observable sometimes in the character of the several pieces of furniture but generally in their colors or modes of adaptation to use very often the eye is offended by their inartistic arrangement straight lines are too prevalent too uninterruptedly continued or clumsily interrupted at right angles if curved lines occur they are repeated into unpleasant uniformity by undue precision the appearance of many a fine apartment is utterly spoiled curtains are rarely well disposed or well chosen in respect to other decorations with formal furniture curtains are out of place and an extensive volume of drapery of any kind is under any circumstance irreconcilable with good taste the proper quantum as well as the proper adjustment depending upon the character of the general effect carpets are better understood of late than of ancient days but we still very frequently err in their patterns and colors the soul of the apartment is the carpet from it are deduced not only the hues but the forms of all objects incumbent a judge at common law may be an ordinary man a good judge of a carpet must be a genius yet we have heard discussing of carpets with the air d'un mouton qui rêve fellows who should not and who could not be entrusted with the management of their own moustaches every one knows that a large floor may have a covering of large figures and that a small one must have a covering of small yet this is not all the knowledge in the world as regards texture the saxony is alone admissible brussels is the preter pluperfect tense of fashion and turkey is taste in its dying agonies touching pattern a carpet should not be bedizened out like a rikari indian all red chalk yellow ochre and cock's feathers in brief 
distinct grounds and vivid circular or cycloid figures of no meaning are here median laws the abomination of flowers or representations of well-known objects of any kind should not be endured within the limits of christendom indeed whether on carpets or curtains or tapestry or ottoman coverings all upholstery of this nature should be rigidly arabesque as for those antique floor-cloths still occasionally seen in the dwellings of the rabble cloths of huge sprawling and radiating devices stripe interspersed and glorious with all hues among which no ground is intelligible these are but the wicked invention of a race of time-servers and money-lovers children of baal and worshippers of mammon bentham's who to spare thought and economize fancy first cruelly invented the kaleidoscope and then established joint stock companies to twirl it by steam glare is a leading error in the philosophy of american household decoration an error easily recognized as deduced from the perversion of taste just specified we are violently enamored of gas and of glass the former is totally inadmissible within doors its harsh and unsteady light offends no one having both brains and eyes will use it a mild or what artists term a cool light with its consequent warm shadows will do wonders for even an ill-furnished apartment never was a more lovely thought than that of the astral lamp we mean of course the astral lamp proper the lamp of argon with its original plain ground-glass shade and its tempered and uniform moonlight rays the cut glass shade is a weak invention of the enemy the eagerness with which we have adopted it partly on account of its flashiness but principally on account of its greater rest is a good commentary on the proposition with which we began it is not too much to say that the deliberate employer of a cut-glass shade is either radically deficient in taste or blindly subservient to the caprices of fashion the light proceeding from one of these gaudy abominations is unequal broken and painful it alone is sufficient to mar a world of good effect in the furniture subjected to its influence female loveliness in especial is more than one half disenchanted beneath its evil eye in the matter of glass generally we proceed upon false principles its leading feature is glitter and in that one word how much of all that is detestable do we express flickering unquiet lights are sometimes pleasing to children and idiots always so but in the establishment of a room they should be scrupulously avoided in truth even strong steady lights are inadmissible the huge and unmeaning glass chandeliers prism cut glass lighted and without shade which dangle on our most fashionable drawing-rooms may be cited as the quintessence of all that is false in taste or preposterous in folly the rage for glitter because its idea has become as we before observed confounded with that of magnificence in the abstract has led us also to the exaggerated employment of mirrors we line our dwellings with great british plates and then imagine we have done a fine thing now the slightest thought will be sufficient to convince any one who has an eye at all of the ill effect of numerous looking-glasses and especially of large ones 
Regarded apart from its reflection, the mirror represents a continuous, flat, colorless, unrelieved surface, a thing always and obviously unpleasant. Considered as a reflector, it is potent in producing a monstrous and odious uniformity, and the evil is here aggravated, not in a merely direct proportion with the augmentation of its sources, but in a ratio constantly increasing. In fact, a room with four or five mirrors arranged at random is, for all purposes of artistic show, a room of no shape at all. If we add to this evil the attendant glitter upon glitter, we have a perfect farrago of discordant and displeasing effects. The veriest bumpkin, on entering an apartment so bedizened, would be instantly aware of something wrong, although he might be altogether unable to assign a cause for his dissatisfaction. But let the same person be led into a room tastefully furnished, and he would be startled into an exclamation of pleasure and surprise. It is an evil growing out of our republican institutions that here a man of large purse has usually a very little soul which he keeps in it. The corruption of taste is a portion or a pendant of the dollar manufacture. As we grow rich, our ideas grow rusty. It is, therefore, not among our aristocracy that we must look, if at all in Appalachia, for the spirituality of a British boudoir. But we have seen apartments in the tenure of Americans of modern, possibly modest or moderate, means, which in negative merit at least, might vie with any of the ormolud cabinets of our friends across the water. Even now there is present to our mind's eye a small and not ostentatious chamber with whose decorations no fault can be found. The proprietor lies asleep on a sofa, the weather is cool, the time is near midnight. We will make a sketch of the room during his slumber. It is oblong, some thirty feet in length and twenty-five in breadth, a shape affording the best ordinary opportunities for the adjustment of furniture. It has but one door, by no means a wide one, which is at one end of the parallelogram, and but two windows, which are at the other. These latter are large, reaching down to the floor, have deep recesses, and open on an Italian veranda. Their panes are of a crimson-tinted glass, set in rosewood framings, more massive than usual. They are curtained within the recess by a thick silver tissue adapted to the shape of the window and hanging loosely in small volumes. Without the recess are curtains of an exceedingly rich crimson silk, fringed with a deep network of gold and lined with silver tissue, which is the material of the exterior blind. There are no cornices, but the folds of the whole fabric, which are sharp rather than massive and have an airy appearance, issue from beneath a broad entablature of rich gilt-work, which encircles the room at the junction of the ceiling and walls. The drapery is thrown open, also, or closed, by means of a thick rope of gold loosely enveloping it, and resolving itself readily into a knot. No pins or other such devices are apparent. The colors of the curtains and their fringe, the tints of crimson and gold, appear everywhere in profusion, and determine the character of the room. The carpet, of Saxony material, 
is quite half an inch thick and is of the same crimson ground relieved simply by the appearance of a gold cord like that festooning the curtains slightly relieved above the surface of the ground and thrown upon it in such a manner as to form a succession of short irregular curves one occasionally overlaying the other the walls are prepared with a glossy paper of a silver-gray tint spotted with small arabesque devices of a fainter hue of the prevalent crimson many paintings relieve the expanse of paper these are chiefly landscapes of an imaginative cast such as the fairy grottoes of Stanfield or the lake of the dismal swamp of Chapman. There are, nevertheless, three or four female heads of an ethereal beauty, portraits in the manner of Sully. The tone of each picture is warm but dark. There are no brilliant effects. Repose speaks in all. Not one is of a small size. Diminutive paintings give that spotty look to a room which is the blemish of so many a fine work of art overtouched. The frames are broad but not deep and richly carved without being dulled or filigreed. They have the whole luster of burnished gold. They lie flat on the walls and do not hang off the cords. The designs themselves are often seen to better advantage in this latter position, but the general appearance of the chamber is injured. But one mirror, and this not a very large one, is visible. In shape it is nearly circular, and it is hung so that a reflection of the person can be obtained from it in none of the ordinary sitting-places of the room. Two large low sofas of rosewood and crimson silk, gold-flowered, form the only seats, with the exception of two light conversation chairs, also of rosewood. There is a pianoforte, rosewood also, without cover and thrown open. An octagonal table, formed altogether of the richest gold-threaded marble, is placed near one of the sofas. This is also without cover. The drapery of the curtains have been thought sufficient. Four large and gorgeous Sèvres vases, in which bloom a profusion of sweet and vivid flowers, occupy the slightly rounded angles of the room. A tall candelabrum, bearing a small antique lamp with highly perfumed oil, is standing near the head of my sleeping friend. Some light and graceful hanging shelves, with golden edges and crimson silk cords with gold tassels, sustain two or three hundred magnificently bound books. Beyond these things there is no furniture, if we accept an argon lamp, with a plain crimson-tinted ground-glass shade which hangs from the lofty vaulted ceiling by a single slender gold chain, and throws a tranquil but magical radiance over all. End of section one. Recording by Larry Wilson. A Tale of Jerusalem by Edgar Allan Poe. Intensos rigidarn in frontern ascendere canos passus erat. Lucan de Catone. Abrisly bore. Let us hurry to the walls, said Abel Pittam to Buzzy Ben Levy and Simeon the Pharisee, on the tenth day of the month Tammuz, in the year of the world three thousand nine hundred and forty-one. 
Let us hasten to the ramparts adjoining the gate of Benjamin, which is the city of David, and overlooking the camp of the uncircumcised. For it is the last hour of the fourth watch, being sunrise, and the idolaters, in fulfillment of the promise of Pompeii, should be awaiting us with the lambs for the sacrifices. Simeon, Abel Pittim, and Duzzy ben Levi were the Gizbarim, or sub-collectors of the offering in the holy city of Jerusalem. Verily, replied the Pharisee, let us hasten, for this generosity in the heathen is unwanted, and fickle-mindedness has ever been an attribute of the worshippers of Baal. That they are fickle-minded and treacherous is as true as the Pentateuch, said Buzzy ben Levi. But that is only toward the people of Adonai. When was it ever known that the Ammonites proved wanting in their own interests? Methinks it is no great stretch of generosity to allow us lambs for the altar of the Lord, receiving in lieu thereof thirty silver shekels per head. Thou forgettest, however, Ben Levy, replied Abel Pittim, that the Roman Pompey, who is now impiously besieging the city of the Most High, has no assurity that we apply not the lambs thus purchased for the altar to the sustenance of the body, rather than of the spirit. Now by the five corners of my beard, shouted the Pharisee, who belonged to the sect called the Dashers, that little knot of saints whose manner of dashing and lacerating the feet against the pavement was long a thorn and a reproach to less zealous devotees, a stumbling block to less gifted perambulators. By the five corners of that beard which, as a priest, I am forbidden to shave, have we lived to see the day when a blaspheming and idolatrous upstart of Rome shall accuse us of appropriating to the appetites of the flesh the most holy and consecrated elements? Have we lived to see the day when... Let us not question the motives of the Philistine, interrupted Abel Pittim. For today we profit for the first time by his avarice or by his generosity. But rather let us hurry to the ramparts, lest offerings should be wanting for that altar, whose fire the rains of heaven cannot extinguish, and whose pillars of smoke no tempest can turn aside. That part of the city to which our worthy Gizbarim now hastened, and which bore the name of its architect, King David, was esteemed the most strongly fortified district of Jerusalem, being situated upon the steep and lofty hill of Zion. Here a broad, deep, circumvallatory trench, hewn from the solid rock, was defended by a wall of great strength erected upon its inner edge. This wall was adorned at regular interspaces by square towers of white marble, the lowest sixty and the highest one hundred and twenty cubits in height. But in the vicinity of the gate of Benjamin, the wall arose by no means from the margin of the fossa. On the contrary, between the level of the ditch and the basement of the rampart sprang up a perpendicular cliff of 250 cubits, forming part of the precipitous Mount Moriah, so that when Simeon and his associates arrived on the summit of the tower called Adonai Bezek, the loftiest of all the turrets round about Jerusalem, and the usual place of conference with the besieging army, 
they looked down upon the camp of the enemy from an eminence excelling by many feet that of the pyramid of cheops and by several that of the temple of belus verily sighed the pharisee as he peered dizzily over the precipice the uncircumcised are as the sands of the seashore as the locusts in the wilderness the valley of the king hath become the valley of adamon and yet added ben levy thou canst not point me out a philistine no not one from aleph to tau from the wilderness to the battlements who seemeth any bigger than the letter jot lower away the basket with the shekels of silver here shouted a roman soldier in a hoarse rough voice which appeared to issue from the regions of pluto lower away the basket with the accursed coin which it has broken the jaw of a noble roman to pronounce it is thus you evince your gratitude to our master pompeius who in his condescension has thought fit to listen to your idolatrous importunities the god phoebus who is a true god has been charioted for an hour and were you not to be on the ramparts by sunrise Adepol, do you think that we the conquerors of the world have nothing better to do than stand waiting by the walls of every kennel to traffic with the dogs of the earth lower away i say and see that your trumpery be bright in color and just in weight elohim ejaculated the pharisee as the discordant tones of the centurion rattled up the crags of the precipice and fainted away against the temple elohim who is a god phoebus whom doth the blasphemer invoke thou buzz ben levy who art read in the laws of the gentiles and has sojourned among them who babble with the teraphim is it negro of whom the idolater speaketh or ashima or nibhaz or tartak or adramalek or anamalek or succoth beneth or dagon or belial or baal perith or baal peor or baalzebub verily it is neither but beware how thou lettest the rope slip too rapidly through thy fingers for should the wicker work chance to hang on the projections of yonder crag there will be a woeful outpouring of the holy things of the sanctuary by the assistance of some rudely constructed machinery the heavily laden basket was now carefully lowered down among the multitude and from the giddy pinnacle the romans were seen gathering confusedly round it but owing to the vast height and the prevalence of a fog no distinct view of their operations could be obtained half an hour had already elapsed we shall be too late sighed the pharisee as at the expiration of this period he looked over into the abyss we shall be too late we shall be turned off by the office of catolum no more responded abel pittam no more shall we feast upon the fat of the land no longer shall our beards be odorous with frankincense our loins girded up with the fine linen from the temple rascal swore ben levy rascal do they mean to defraud us of the purchase money or holy moses are they weighing the shekels of the tabernacle 
They have given the signal at last, cried the Pharisee. They have given the signal at last. Pull away, Babel Pitten, and thou, Buzzy Ben Levy, pull away. For verily the Philistines have either still hold upon the basket, or the Lord hath softened their hearts to place therein a beast of good weight. And the Gizbarim pulled away, while their burden swung heavily upward through the still-increasing mist. Bushohay! As at the conclusion of an hour, some object at the extremity of the rope became indistinctly visible. Bushohay! was the exclamation which burst from the lips of Ben Levy. Bushohay! For shame! It is a ram from the thickets of Engedi, and as rugged as the valley of Jehoshaphat. It is a firstling of the flock, said Abel Pittam. I know him by the bleating of his lips and the innocent folding of his limbs. His eyes are more beautiful than the jewels of pectoral, and his flesh is like the honey of Hebron. It is a fatted calf from the pastures of Bashan, said the Pharisee. The heathen have dealt wonderfully with us. Let us raise up our voices in a psalm. Let us give thanks on the shawn and on the psaltery, on the harp and on the hugub and the cithern and the sackbut. It was not until the basket had arrived within a few feet of the gizbarim that a low grunt betrayed to their perception a hog of no common size. Now, El Imanu, slowly and with upturned eyes ejaculated the trio, as letting go their hold, the emancipated porker tumbled headlong among the Philistines. El Imanu, God be with us. It is the unutterable flesh. End of section two. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Sphinx by Edgar Allan Poe. During the dread reign of the cholera in New York, I had accepted the invitation of a relative to spend a fortnight with him in the retirement of his cottage orne on the banks of the Hudson. We had here around us all the ordinary means of summer amusement, and what with rambling in the woods, sketching, boating, fishing, bathing, music, and books, we should have passed the time pleasantly enough, but for the fearful intelligence which reached us every morning from the populous city. Not a day elapsed which did not bring us news of the decease of some acquaintance. Then, as the fatality increased, we learned to expect daily the loss of some friend. At length we trembled at the approach of every message. The very air from the south seemed to us redolent of death. That pausing thought, indeed, took entire possession of my soul. I could neither speak, think, nor dream of anything else. My host was of a less excitable temperament, and, although greatly depressed in spirits, exerted himself to sustain my own. His richly philosophical intellect was not at any time affected by unrealities. To the substances of terror he was sufficiently alive, but of its shadows he had no apprehension. His endeavors to arouse me from the condition of abnormal gloom into which I had fallen were frustrated in great measure by certain volumes which I found in his library. 
These were of a character to force into germination whatever seeds of hereditary superstition lay latent in my bosom. I had been reading these books without his knowledge, and thus he was often at a loss to account for the forcible impressions which had been made upon my fancy. A favorite topic with me was the popular belief in omens, a belief which, at this one epoch of my life, I was almost seriously disposed to defend. On this subject we had long and animated discussions, he maintaining the utter groundlessness of faith in such matters, I contending that a popular sentiment arising with absolute spontaneity, that is to say, without apparent traces of suggestion, had in itself the unmistakable elements of truth, and was entitled to as much respect as that intuition which is the idiosyncrasy of the individual man of genius. The fact is, that soon after my arrival at the cottage, there had occurred to myself an incident so entirely inexplicable, and which had in it so much of the portentous character, that I might well have been excused for regarding it as an omen. It appalled, and at the same time so confounded and bewildered me, that many days elapsed before I could make up my mind to communicate the circumstances to my friend. Near the close of an exceedingly warm day, I was sitting, book in hand, at an open window, commanding, through a long vista of the river-banks, a view of a distant hill, the face of which nearest my position had been denuded, by what is termed a landslide, of the principal portion of its trees. My thoughts had been long wandering from the volume before me to the gloom and desolation of the neighboring city. Uplifting my eyes from the page, they fell upon the naked face of the hill, and upon an object, upon some living monster of hideous conformation, which very rapidly made its way from the summit to the bottom, disappearing finally in the dense forest below. As this creature first came in sight, I doubted my own sanity, or at least the evidence of my own eyes, and many minutes passed before I succeeded in convincing myself that I was neither mad nor in a dream. Yet when I described the monster, which I distinctly saw and calmly surveyed through the whole period of its progress, my readers, I fear, will feel more difficulty in being convinced of these points than even I did myself. Estimating the size of the creature by comparison with the diameter of the large trees near which it passed, the few giants of the forest which had escaped the fury of the landslide, I concluded it to be far larger than any ship of the line in existence. I say ship of the line because the shape of the monster suggested the idea the hull of one of our seventy-four might convey a very tolerable conception of the general outline. The mouth of the animal was situated at the extremity of a proboscis, and about as thick as the body of an ordinary elephant. Near the root of this trunk was an immense quantity of black shaggy hair, more than could have been supplied by the coats of a score of buffaloes, and projecting from this hair downwardly and laterally, sprang two gleaming tusks, not unlike those of the wild boar, but of infinitely greater dimensions. Extending forward, parallel with the proboscis, and on each side of it, was a gigantic staff, thirty or forty feet in length, formed seemingly of pure crystal, and in shape of a perfect prism. It reflected in the most gorgeous manner the rays of the declining sun." 
The trunk was fashioned like a wedge, with the apex to the earth. From it there were outspread two pairs of wings, each wing nearly one hundred yards in length, one pair being placed above the other, and all thickly covered with metal scales, each scale apparently some ten or twelve feet in diameter. I observed that the upper and lower tiers of wings were connected by a strong chain. But the chief peculiarity of this horrible thing was the representation of a death's head, which covered nearly the whole surface of its breast, and which was as accurately traced in glaring white upon the dark ground of the body as if it had been there carefully designed by an artist. While I regarded the terrific animal, and more especially the appearance on its breast, with a feeling of horror and awe, with a sentiment of forthcoming evil which I found it impossible to quell by any effort of the reason, I perceived the huge jaws at the extremity of the proboscis suddenly expand themselves, and from there proceeded a sound so loud and so expressive of woe that it struck upon my nerves like a knell and as the monster disappeared at the foot of the hill, I fell at once, fainting, to the floor. Upon recovering, my first impulse, of course, was to inform my friend of what I had seen and heard, and I can scarcely explain what feeling of repugnance it was which, in the end, operated to prevent me. At length, one evening, some three or four days after the occurrence, we were sitting together in the room in which I had seen the apparition, I occupying the same seat at the same window, and he lounging on a sofa near at hand. The association of the place and time impelled me to give him an account of the phenomenon. He heard me to the end, at first laughed heartily, and then lapsed into an excessively grave demeanour, as if my insanity was a thing beyond suspicion. At this instant I again had a distinct view of the monster, to which, with a shout of absolute terror, I now directed his attention. He looked eagerly, but maintained that he saw nothing, although I designated minutely the course of the creature as it made its way down the naked face of the hill. I was now immeasurably alarmed, for I considered the vision either as an omen of my death or worse, as the forerunner of an attack of mania. I threw myself passionately back in my chair, and for some moments buried my face in my hands. When I uncovered my eyes, the apparition was no longer apparent. My host, however, had in some degree resumed the calmness of his demeanour, and questioned me very vigorously in respect to the conformation of the visionary creature. When I had fully satisfied him on this head, he sighed deeply, as if relieved of some intolerable burden, and went on to talk, with what I thought a cruel calmness, of various points of speculative philosophy, which had heretofore formed subject of discussion between us. I remember his insisting very especially, among other things, upon the idea that the principal source of error in all human investigations lay in the liability of the understanding to underrate or to overrate the importance of an object, through mere misadmeasurement of its propinquity. To estimate properly, for example, he said, the influence to be exercised on mankind at large by the thorough diffusion of democracy, 
the distance of the epoch at which such diffusion may possibly be accomplished should not fail to form an item in the estimate. Yet can you tell me one writer on the subject of government who has ever thought this particular branch of the subject worthy of discussion at all? He here paused for a moment, stepped to a bookcase, and brought forth one of the ordinary synopses of natural history. Requesting me then to exchange seats with him, that he might the better distinguish the fine print of the volume, he took my armchair at the window, and, opening the book, resumed his discourse very much in the same tone as before. But for exceeding minuteness, he said, in describing the monster, I might never have had it in my power to demonstrate to you what it was. In the first place, let me read to you a schoolboy account of the genus Sphinx, of the family of the Crepuscularia, of the order of Lepidoptera, of the class of Insecta, or insects. The account runs thus. Four membranous wings, covered with little colored scales of metallic appearance, mouth forming a rolled proboscis, produced by an elongation of the jaws, upon the sides of which are found the rudiments of mandibles and downy palpi. The inferior wings retained to the superior by a stiff hair, antennae in the form of an elongated club, prismatic, abdomen pointed. Abdomen pointed, the death-headed sphinx has occasioned much terror among the vulgar at times by the melancholy kind of cry which it utters, and the insignia of death which it wears upon its corslet. Here he closed the book, and leaned forward in the chair, placing himself accurately in the position which I had occupied at the moment of beholding the monster. "'Ah, here it is!' he presently exclaimed. "'It is reascending the face of the hill, and a very remarkable-looking creature I admit it to be.' Still, it is by no means so large or so distant as you imagined it, for the fact is that, as it wriggles its way up this thread which some spider has wrought along the window-sash, I find it to be about the sixteenth of an inch in its extreme length, and also about sixteenth of an inch distant from the pupil of my eye. End of section 3 Recording by Larry Wilson Hop Frog by Edgar Allan Poe I never knew anyone so keenly alive to a joke as the king was. He seemed to live only for joking. To tell a good story of the joke kind, and to tell it well, was the surest road to his favor. Thus it happened that his seven ministers were all noted for their accomplishments as jokers. They all took after the king, too, in being large, corpulent, oily men, as well as inimitable jokers. Whether people grow fat by joking, or whether there is something in fat itself which predisposes to a joke, I have never been quite able to determine, but certain it is that a lean joker is a rara avis in terrace. About the refinements, or as he called them, the ghost of wit, the king troubled himself very little. He had an especial admiration for breadth in a jest, and would often put up with length for the sake of it. Over niceties wearied him. He would have preferred Rabelais' Gargantua to the Zadig of Voltaire. 
and upon the whole practical jokes suited his taste far better than verbal ones. At the date of my narrative, professing jesters had not altogether gone out of fashion at court. Several of the great continental powers still retained their fools, who wore motley with caps and bells, and who were expected to be always ready with sharp witticisms at a moment's notice, in consideration of the crumbs that fell from the royal table. Our king, as a matter of course, retained his fool. The fact is, he required something in the way of folly, if only to counterbalance the heavy wisdom of the seven wise men who were his ministers, uh, not to mention himself. His fool, or professional jester, was not only a fool, however. His value was trebled in the eyes of the king by the fact that his being also a dwarf and a cripple. Dwarfs were as common in court in those days as fools, and many monarchs would have found it difficult to get through their days, days are rather longer at court than elsewhere, without both a jester to laugh with and a dwarf to laugh at. But, as I have already observed, your jesters, in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred, are fat, round, and unwieldy, so that it was no small source of self-congratulation with our king that, in Hopfrog, this was the fool's name, he possessed a triplicate treasure in one person. I believe the name Hopfrog was not given to the dwarf by his sponsors at baptism, but it was conferred upon him by general consent of the several ministers on account of his inability to walk as other men do. In fact, Hopfrog could only get along by a sort of interjectional gait, something between a leap and a wriggle, a movement that afforded illimitable amusement and, of course, consolation to the king, for, notwithstanding the protuberance of his stomach and a constitutional swelling of the head, the king by his whole court was accounted a capital figure. But although Hopfrog, through the distortion of his legs, could move only with great pain and difficulty along a road or floor, the prodigious muscular power which nature seems to have bestowed upon his arms, by way of compensation for deficiency in the lower limbs, enabled him to perform many feats of wonderful dexterity where trees or ropes were in question, or anything else to climb. At such exercises he certainly much more resembled a squirrel or a small monkey than a frog. I am not able to say with precision from what country Hop Frog originally came. It was from some barbarous region, however, that no person ever heard of, a vast distance from the court of our king. Hop Frog and a young girl, very little less dwarfish than himself, although of exquisite proportions and a marvelous dancer, had been forcibly carried off from their respective homes in adjoining provinces and sent as presents to the king by one of his ever-victorious generals. Under these circumstances, it is not to be wondered at that a close intimacy arose between the two little captives. Indeed, they soon become sworn friends, and Hop Frog, who, although he made a great deal of sport, was by no means popular, had it not in his power to render Trippetta many services. But she, on account of her grace and exquisite beauty, although a dwarf, was universally admired and petted. So she possessed much influence and never failed to use it whenever she could for the benefit of Hopfrog. 
On some grand state occasion, I forgot what, the king determined to have a masquerade, and whenever a masquerade or anything of that kind occurred at our court, then the talents both of Hop Frog and Trippetta were sure to be called into play. Hop Frog, in special, was so inventive in the way of getting up pageants, suggesting novel characters, and arranging costumes for masked balls that nothing could be done, it seems, without his assistance. The night appointed for the fete had arrived. A gorgeous hall had been fitted up under Trippetta's eye with every kind of device which could possibly give eclat to a masquerade. The whole court was in a fever of expectation. As for costumes and characters, it might well be supposed that everybody had come to a decision on such points. Many had made up their minds as to what roles they should assume a week or even a month in advance. And in fact, there was not a particle of indecision anywhere, except in the case of the king and his seven ministers. Why they hesitated, I never could tell, unless they did it by way of a joke. More probably, they found it difficult, on account of being so fat, to make up their minds. At all events, time flew, and as a last resort, they sent for Trippetta and Hopfrog. When the two little friends obeyed the summons of the king, they found him sitting at his wine with the seven members of his cabinet council. But the monarch appeared to be in a very ill humor. He knew that Hopfrog was not fond of wine, for it excited the poor cripple almost to madness. And madness is no comfortable feeling. But the king loved his practical jokes and took pleasure in forcing Hopfrog to drink and, as the king called it, to be merry. Come here, Hop Frog, he said as the jester and his friend entered the room. Swallow this bumper to the health of your absent friends. Here, Hop Frog sighed, and then let us have the benefit of your invention. We want characters. Characters, man. Something novel out of the way. We are wearied with this everlasting sameness. Come drink. The wine will brighten your wits. Hopfrog endeavored as usual to get up a jest in reply to these advances from the king, but oh, the effort was too much. It happened to be the poor dwarf's birthday, and the command to drink to his absent friends forced the tears to his eyes. Many large bitter drops fell into the goblet as he took it humbly from the hand of the tyrant. <laughs> roared the latter as the dwarfs reluctantly drained the beaker. See what a glass of good wine can do. Why, your eyes are shining already. Poor fellow, his large eyes gleamed rather than shone, for the effect of wine on his excitable brain was not more powerful than instantaneous. He placed the goblet nervously on the table and looked round upon the company with a half-insane stare. They all seemed highly amused at the success of the king's joke. "'And now to business,' said the prime minister, a very fat man. "'Yes,' said the king. "'Come, lend us your assistance. "'Characters, my fine fellow. "'We stand in need of characters.' All of us! <laughs> and as this was seriously meant for a joke, his laugh was chorused by the seven. 
Hopfrog also laughed, although feebly and somewhat vacantly. Come, come, said the king impatiently. Have you nothing to suggest? I am endeavoring to think of something novel, replied the dwarf abstractedly, for he was quite bewildered by the wine. Endeavoring, cried the tyrant fiercely. What do you mean by that? Ah, I perceive you are sulky and want more wine. Here, drink this. And he poured out another goblet full and offered it to the cripple, who merely gazed at it, gasping for breath. Drink, I say, shouted the monster, or by the fiends. The dwarf hesitated. The king grew purple with rage. The courtier smirked. Trippetta pale as a corpse advanced to the monarch's seat and, falling on her knees before him, implored him to spare her friend. The tyrant regarded her for some moments, in evident wonder at her audacity. He seemed quite at a loss what to do or say, how most becomingly to express his indignation. At last, without uttering a syllable, he pushed her violently from him and threw the contents of the brimming goblet in her face. The poor girl got up the best she could and, not daring even to sigh, resumed her position at the foot of the table. There was a dead silence for about half a minute, during which the falling of a leaf or of a feather might have been heard. It was interrupted by a low but harsh and protracted grating sound which seemed to come at once from every corner of the room. What? What? What are you making that noise for? demanded the king, turning furiously to the dwarf. The latter seemed to have recovered in a great measure from his intoxication and looked fixedly but quietly into the tyrant's face merely ejaculated, I, I, how could it have been me? The sound appeared to come from without, observed one of the courtiers. I fancy it was the parrot at the window whetting his bill upon his cage wires. True, replied the monarch, as if much relieved by the suggestion. But on the honor of a knight, I could have sworn that it was the gritting of this vagabond's teeth. Hereupon the dwarf laughed. The king was too confirmed a joker to object to anyone's laughing, and displayed a set of large, powerful, and very repulsive teeth. Moreover, he avowed his perfect willingness to swallow as much wine as desired. The monarch was pacified in having drained another bumper with no very perceptible ill effect. Hopfrog entered at once and with spirit into the plans for the masquerade. I cannot tell what was the association of idea, observed he very tranquilly, as if he had never tasted wine in his life. But just after your majesty had struck the girl and thrown the wine in her face just after your majesty had done this, and while the parrot was making that odd noise outside the window, 
There came into my mind a capital diversion, one of my own country frolics often enacted among us at our masquerades. But here it will be new altogether. Unfortunately, however, it requires a company of eight persons and... Here we are, cried the king, laughing at his acute discovery of the coincidence. Eight to a fraction, I and my seven ministers. Come, come, what is the diversion? We call it, replied the cripple, the eight chained orangutans, and it really is excellent sport if well enacted. We will enact it, remarked the king, drawing himself up and lowering his eyelids. The beauty of the game, continued Hop Frog, lies in the fright it occasions among the women. Ha <laughs> ha, capital, roared in course the monarch and his ministry. I will equip you as orangutans, proceeded the dwarf. Leave all that to me. The resemblance shall be so striking that the company of masqueraders will take you for real beasts. And, of course, they will be as much terrified as astonished. Oh, this is exquisite, exclaimed the king. Hop frog, I will make a man of you. The chains are for the purpose of increasing the confusion by their jangling. You are supposed to have escaped en masse from your keepers. Your majesty cannot conceive the effect produced at a masquerade by eight chained orangutans, imagined to be real ones by most of the company, and rushing in with savage cries among the crowd of delicately and gorgeously habited men and women. The contrast is inimitable. It must be, said the king, and the council arose hurriedly, as it was growing late, to put in execution the scheme of Hopfrog. His mode of equipping the party as orangutans was very simple, but effective enough for his purposes. The animals in question had, at the epoch of my story, very rarely been seen in any part of the civilized world and as the imitations made by the dwarf were sufficiently beast-like and more than sufficiently hideous, their truthfulness to nature was thus thought to be secured. The king and his ministers were first encased in tight-fitting stockinette shirts and drawers. They were then saturated with tar. At this stage of the process, some of the party suggested feathers. <laughs> But the suggestion was at once overruled by the dwarf, who soon convinced the eight by ocular demonstration that the hair of such a brute as the orangutan was much more efficiently represented by flu. A thick coating of the latter was accordingly plastered upon the coating of tar. A long chain was now procured. First it was passed about the waist of the king and tied, then about another of the party, and also tied then about all successively in the same manner. When this chaining arrangement was complete and the party stood as far apart from each other as possible, they formed a circle. And to make all things appear natural, Hopfrog passed 
the residue of the chain in two diameters at right angles across the circle, after the fashion adopted at the present day by those who capture chimpanzees or other large apes in Borneo. The grand saloon in which the masquerade was to take place was a circular room, very lofty and receiving the light of the sun only through a single window at top. At night, the season for which the apartment was especially designed, it was illuminated principally by a large chandelier, depending by a chain from the center of the skylight, and lowered or elevated by means of a counterbalance as usual. But, in order not to look unsightly, this ladder passed outside the cupola and over the roof. The arrangements of the room had been left to Trippetta's superintendence. But in some particulars, it seems, she had been guided by the calmer judgment of her friend the dwarf, and his suggestion it was that on this occasion the chandelier was removed. Its waxen drippings, which, in weather so warm it was quite impossible to prevent, would have been seriously detrimental to the rich dresses of the guests, who, on account of the crowded state of the saloon, could not all be expected to keep from out its center that is to say, from under the chandelier. Additional sconces were set in various parts of the hall, out of the way, and a flambeau emitting sweet odor was placed in the right hand of each of the carides that stood against the wall, some fifty or sixty altogether. The eight orangutans, taking hop-frog's advice, waited patiently until midnight, when the room was thoroughly filled with masqueraders, before making their appearance. No sooner had the clock ceased striking, however, than they rushed, or rather rolled in altogether, for the impediments of their change caused most of the party to fall, and all to stumble as they entered. The excitement among the masqueraders was prodigious, and filled the heart of the king with glee. As had been anticipated, there were not a few of the guests who supposed the ferocious-looking creatures to be beasts of some kind in reality, if not precisely orangutans. Many of the women swooned with affright, and had not the king taken the precaution to exclude all weapons from the saloon, his party might soon have expiated their frolic in their blood. As it was, a general rush was made for the doors, but the king had ordered them to be locked immediately upon his entrance, and at the dwarf's suggestion, the keys had been deposited with him. While the tumult was at its height, and each masquerader attentive only to his own safety, for in fact there was much real danger from the pressure of the excited crowd, the chain by which the chandelier ordinarily hung, and which had been drawn up on its removal, might have been seen very gradually to descend until its hooked extremity came within three feet of the floor. Soon after this, the king and his seven friends, having reeled about the hall in all directions, found themselves at length in its center, and, of course, in immediate contact with the chain. While they were thus situated, the dwarf, who had followed noiselessly at their heels, inciting them to keep up the commotion, took hold of their own chain at the intersection of the two portions which crossed the circle diametrically and at right angles. Here, with the rapidity of thought, he inserted the hook from which the chandelier had been wont to depend, and in an instant, by some unseen agency, the chandelier chain was drawn so far upward as to take the hook out of reach, 
and as an inevitable consequence to drag the orangutans together in close connection and face to face. The masqueraders by this time had recovered in some measure from their alarm, and beginning to regard the whole matter as a well-contrived pleasantry, set up a loud shout of laughter at the predicament of the apes. "'Leave them to me!' now screamed Hop Frog, his shrill voice making itself easily heard through all the din. "'Leave them to me! I fancy I know them! If I can only get a good look at them, I can tell who they are!' Here, scrambling over the heads of the crowd, he managed to get to the wall. When seizing a flambeau from one of the caryatides, he returned as he went to the center of the room, leaping with the agility of a monkey upon the king's head, and thence clambered a few feet up the chain, holding down the torch to examine the group of orangutans, and still screaming, I shall soon find out who they are. And now, while the whole assembly, the apes included, were convulsed with laughter, the jester suddenly uttered a shrill whistle, when the chain flew violently up for about thirty feet, dragging with it the dismayed and struggling orangutans, and leaving them suspended in mid-air between the skylight and the floor. Hop Frog, clinging to the chain as it rose, still maintained his relative position in respect to the eight maskers, and still, as if nothing were the matter, continued to thrust his torch down toward them, as though endeavoring to discover who they were. So thoroughly astonished was the whole company at this ascent that a dead silence of about a minute's duration ensued. It was broken by just such a low, harsh, grating sound as had before attracted the attention of the king and his counselors when the former threw the wine in the face of Trippetta. But on the present occasion there could be no question as to whence the sound issued. It came from the fang-like teeth of the dwarf, who ground them and gnashed them as he foamed at the mouth and glared with an expression of maniacal rage into the upturned countenance of the king and his seven companions. Aha! said at length the infuriated jester. Aha! I begin to see who these people are now. Here, pretending to scrutinize the king more closely, he held the flambeau to the flaxen coat which enveloped him, and which instantly burst into a sheet of vivid flame. In less than half a minute, the whole eight orangutans were blazing fiercely amid the shrieks of the multitude who gazed at them from below, horror-stricken and without the power to render them the slightest assistance. At length the flame suddenly increasing in virulence forced the jester to climb higher up the chain to be out of their reach, and as he made this movement the crowd again sank for a brief instant into silence. The dwarf seized the opportunity and once more spoke. I see distinctly, he said, what manner of people these maskers are. They are a great king and his seven privy counselors, a king who does not scruple to strike a defenseless girl, and his seven counselors who abet him in the outrage. As for myself, 
I am simply Hop Frog the Jester. And this is my last jest. Owing to the high combustibility of both the flax and the tar to which it adhered, the dwarf had scarcely made an end of his brief speech before the work of vengeance was complete. The eight corpses swung in their chains, a fetid, blackened, hideous, and indistinguishable mass. The cripple hurled his torch at them, clambered leisurely to the ceiling, and disappeared through the skylight. It is supposed that Trepetta, stationed on the roof of the saloon, had been the accomplice of her friend in his fiery revenge, and that together they effected their escape to their own country, for neither was seen again. End of section four. Recording by Dylan Poza. The Man in the Crowd by Edgar Allan Poe. Ce grand malheur de ne pouvoir être seul. La Briere. It was well said of a certain German book that a last signique lesson, it does not permit itself to be read. There are some secrets which do not permit themselves to be told. Men die nightly in their beds, wringing the hands of ghostly confessors and looking them piteously in the eyes, die with despair of heart and convulsion of throat on account of the hideousness of mysteries which will not suffer themselves to be revealed. Now and then, alas, the conscience of man takes up a burthen so heavy in horror that it can be thrown down only into the grave, and thus the essence of all crime is undivulged. Not long ago, about the closing in of an evening in autumn, I sat at the large bow window of the D Coffee House in London. For some months I had been ill in health, but was now convalescent and, with returning strength, found myself in one of those happy moods which are so precisely the converse of ennui, moods of the keenest appetency, when the film from the mental vision departs, and the intellect, electrified, surpasses as greatly its everyday condition, as does the vivid yet candid reason of Leibniz, the mad and flimsy rhetoric of Gorgias. Merely to breathe was enjoyment, and I derived positive pleasure even from many of the legitimate sources of pain. I felt a calm but inquisitive interest in everything. With a cigar in my mouth and a newspaper in my lap, I had been amusing myself for the greater part of the afternoon, now in poring over advertisements, now in observing the promiscuous company in the room, and now in peering through the smoky panes into the street. This latter is one of the principal thoroughfares of the city, and had been very much crowded during the whole day. But, as the darkness came on, the throng momently increased, and by the time the lamps were well lighted, two dense and continuous tides of population were rushing past the door. At this particular period of the evening, I had never before been in a similar situation, and the tumultuous sea of human heads filled me, therefore, with a delicious novelty of emotion. I gave up, at length, all care of things within the hotel, and became absorbed in contemplation of the scene without. At first, my observations took an abstract and generalizing turn. I looked at the passengers in masses and thought of them in their aggregate relations. 
Soon, however, I descended to details and regarded with minute interest the innumerable varieties of figure, dress, air, gait, visage, and expression of countenance. By far the greater number of those who went by had a satisfied business-like demeanor and seemed to be thinking only of making their way through the press. Their brows were knit and their eyes rolled quickly. When pushed against by fellow wayfarers, they evinced no symptom of impatience, but adjusted their clothes and hurried on. Others, still a numerous class, were restless in their movements, had flushed faces, and talked and gesticulated to themselves, as if feeling in solitude on account of the very denseness of the company around. When impeded in their progress, these people suddenly ceased muttering, but redoubled their gesticulations and awaited, with an absent and overdone smile upon the lips, the course of the persons impeding them. If jostled, they bowed profusely to the jostlers, and appeared overwhelmed with confusion. There was nothing very distinctive about these two large classes beyond what I have noted. Their habiliments belonged to that order which is pointedly termed the decent. They were undoubtedly noblemen, merchants, attorneys, tradesmen, stock jobbers, the eupatrids and the commonplaces of society, men of leisure and men actively engaged in affairs of their own, conducting business upon their own responsibility. They did not greatly excite my attention. The tribe of clerks was an obvious one, and here I discerned two remarkable divisions. There were the junior clerks of flash houses, young gentlemen with tight coats, bright boots, well-oiled hair, and supercilious lips. Setting aside a certain dapperness of carriage, which may be termed deskism for want of a better word, the manner of these persons seemed to me an exact facsimile of what had been the perfection of Bon Ton about twelve or eighteen months before. They wore the cast-off graces of the gentry, and this, I believe, involves the best definition of the class. The division of the upper clerks of staunch firms, or of the steady old fellows, it was not possible to mistake. These were known by their coats and pantaloons of black or brown, made to sit comfortably, with white cravats and waistcoats, broad, solid-looking shoes, and thick hose or gaiters. They had all slightly bald heads, from which the right ears, long used to pen-holding, had an odd habit of standing off on end. I observed that they always removed or settled their hats with both hands, and wore watches with short gold chains of a substantial and ancient pattern. Theirs was the affectation of respectability, if indeed there be an affectation so honorable. There were many individuals of dashing appearance, whom I easily understood as belonging to the race of swell pickpockets, with which all great cities are infested. I watched these gentry with much inquisitiveness, and found it difficult to imagine how they should ever be mistaken for gentlemen by gentlemen themselves. Their voluminousness of wristband, with an air of excessive frankness, should betray them at once. The gamblers, of whom I descried not a few, were still more easily recognizable. They wore every variety of dress, from that of the desperate thimble-rig bully, with velvet waistcoat, fancy neckerchief, gilt chains, and filigreed buttons, to that of the scrupulously inornate clergyman, than which nothing could be less liable to suspicion. Still all were distinguished by a certain sodden swarthiness of complexion, a filmy dimness of eye, and pallor and compression of lip. There were two other traits, moreover, by which I could always detect them, a guarded lowness of tone in conversation, and a more than ordinary extension of the thumb in a direction at right angles with the fingers. Very often, in company with these sharpers, I observed an order of men somewhat different in habits, 
but still birds of a kindred feather. They may be defined as the gentlemen who live by their wits. They seem to prey upon the public in two battalions, that of the dandies and that of the military men. Of the first grade, the leading features are long locks and smiles. Of the second, frogged coats and frowns. Descending in the scale of what is termed gentility, I found darker and deeper themes for speculation. I saw Jew peddlers with hawk eyes flashing from countenances whose every other feature wore only an expression of abject humility. Sturdy professional street beggars scowling upon mendicants of a better stamp whom despair alone had driven forth into the night for charity. Feeble and ghastly invalids upon whom death had placed a sure hand and who sidled and tottered through the mob, looking everyone beseechingly in the face as if in search of some chance consolation, some lost hope. Modest young girls returning from long and late labor to a cheerless home and shrinking more tearfully than indignantly from the glances of ruffians whose direct contact even could not be avoided. Women of the town of all kinds and of all ages, the unequivocal beauty in their prime of her womanhood, putting one in mind of the statue in Lucian, with the surface of Parian marble, and the interior filled with filth, the loathsome and utterly lost leper in rags, the wrinkled, bejeweled, and paint-begrimed beldam, making a last effort at youth, the mere child of immature form, yet from long association, an adept in the dreadful coquetries of her trade, and burning with a rabid ambition to be ranked the equal of her elders in vice, drunkards innumerable and indescribable, some in shreds and patches reeling inarticulate with bruised visage and lackluster eyes, some in whole although filthy garments with a slightly unsteady swagger, thick sensual lips and hearty-looking rubicund faces, others clothed in materials which had once been good, and which even now were scrupulously well-brushed, Men who walked with a more than naturally firm and springy step, but whose countenances were fearfully pale, whose eyes hideously wild and red, and who clutched with quivering fingers as they strode through the crowd at every object which came within their reach. Beside these, pie men, porters, coal, heavers, sweeps, organ grinders, monkey exhibitors, and ballad mongers, those who vended with those who sang, ragged artisans and exhausted laborers of every description, and all full of a noisy and inordinate vivacity which jarred discordantly upon the ear and gave an aching sensation to the eye. As the night deepened, so deepened to me the interest of the scene, for not only did the general character of the crowd materially alter, its gentler features retiring in the gradual withdrawal of the more orderly portion of the people, and its harsher ones coming out into bolder relief as the late hour brought forth every species of infamy from its den, but the rays of the gas lamps, feeble at first in their struggle with the dying day, had now at length gained ascendancy and threw over every thing a fitful and garish luster. All was dark yet splendid, as that ebony to which has been likened the style of Tertullian. The wild effects of the light enchained me to an examination of individual faces, and although the rapidity with which the world of light flitted before the window prevented me from casting more than a glance upon each visage, Still it seemed that in my then peculiar mental state I could frequently read, even in that brief interval of a glance, the history of long years. With my brow to the glass I was thus occupied in scrutinizing the mob, when suddenly there came into view a countenance, that of a decrepit old man some sixty-five or seventy years of age, a countenance which at once arrested and absorbed my whole attention on account of the absolute idiosyncrasy of its expression. Anything even remotely resembling that expression I had never seen before. 
I well remember that my first thought, upon beholding it, was that Retsk, had he viewed it, would have greatly preferred it to his own pictorial incarnations of the fiend. As I endeavored, during the brief minute of my original survey, to form some analysis of the meaning conveyed, there arose confusedly and paradoxically within my mind the ideas of vast mental power, of caution, of penuriousness, of avarice, of coolness, of malice, of bloodthirstiness, of triumph, of merriment, of excessive terror, of intense, of supreme despair. I felt singularly aroused, startled, fascinated. How wild a history, I said to myself, is written within that bosom. Then came a craving desire to keep the man in view, to know more of him. Hurriedly putting on an overcoat and seizing my hat and cane, I made my way into the street and pushed through the crowd in the direction which I had seen him take, for he had already disappeared. With some little difficulty, I at length came within sight of him, approached and followed him closely, yet cautiously, so as not to attract his attention. I had now a good opportunity of examining his person. He was short in stature, very thin, and apparently very feeble. His clothes generally were filthy and ragged, but as he came, now and then within the strong glare of a lamp, I perceived that his linen, although dirty, was of beautiful texture, and my vision deceived me, or, through a rent in a closely buttoned and evidently second-handed roquelaire which enveloped him, I caught a glimpse both of a diamond and of a dagger. These observations heightened my curiosity, and I resolved to follow the stranger whithersoever he should go. It was now fully nightfall, and a thick, humid fog hung over the city, soon ending in a settled and heavy rain. This change of weather had an odd effect upon the crowd, the whole of which was at once put into new commotion and overshadowed by a world of umbrellas. The waver, the jostle, and the hum increased in a tenfold degree. For my own part, I did not much regard the rain, the lurking of an old fever in my system rendering the moisture somewhat too dangerously pleasant. Tying a handkerchief around my mouth, I kept on. For half an hour the old man held his way with difficulty along the great thoroughfare, and I here walked close at his elbow through fear of losing sight of him. Never once turning his head to look back, he did not observe me. By and by he passed into a cross street which, although densely filled with people, was not quite so much thronged as the main one he had quitted. Here a change in his demeanor became evident. He walked more slowly and with less object than before, more hesitatingly. He crossed and recrossed the way repeatedly without apparent aim, and the press was still so thick that at every such moment I was obliged to follow him closely. The street was a narrow and long one, and his course lay within it for nearly an hour, during which the passengers had gradually diminished to about that number which is ordinarily seen at noon in Broadway near the park. So vast a difference is there between a London populace and that of the most frequented American city. A second turn brought us into a square brilliantly lighted and overflowing with life. The old manner of the stranger reappeared. His chin fell upon his breast, while his eyes rolled wildly from under his knit brows in every direction upon those who hemmed him in. He urged his way steadily and perseveringly, I was surprised, however, to find upon his having made the circuit of the square that he turned and retraced his steps. Still more was I astonished to see him repeat the same walk several times, once nearly detecting me as he came round with a sudden movement. In this exercise he spent another hour, at the end of which we met with far less interruption from passengers than at first. 
The rain fell fast, the air grew cool, and the people were retiring to their homes. With a gesture of impatience, the wanderer passed into a by-street comparatively deserted. Down this, some quarter of a mile long, he rushed with an activity I could not have dreamed of seeing in one so aged, and which put me to much trouble in pursuit. A few minutes brought us to a large and busy bazaar, with the localities of which the stranger appeared well acquainted, and where his original demeanor again became apparent, as he forced his way to and fro without aim among the host of buyers and sellers. During the hour and a half, or thereabouts, which we passed in this place, it required much caution on my part to keep him within reach without attracting his observation. Luckily, I wore a pair of couchock overshoes and could move about in perfect silence. At no moment did he see that I watched him. He entered shop after shop, priced nothing, spoke no word, and looked at all objects with a wild and vacant stare. I was now utterly amazed at his behavior, and firmly resolved that we should not part until I had satisfied myself in some measure respecting him. A loud-toned clock struck eleven, and the company were fast deserting the bazaar. A shopkeeper, in putting up a shutter, jostled the old man, and at the instant I saw a strong shudder come over his frame. He hurried into the street, looked anxiously around him for an instant, and then ran with incredible swiftness through many crooked and peopleless lanes, until we emerged once more upon the great thoroughfare whence we had started, the street of the D Hotel. It no longer wore, however, the same aspect. It was still brilliant with gas, but the rain fell fiercely, and there were few persons to be seen. The stranger grew pale. He walked moodily some paces up the once populous avenue, then, with a heavy sigh, turned in the direction of the river, and, plunging through a great variety of devious ways, came out at length in view of one of the principal theaters. It was about being closed, and the audience were thronging from the doors. I saw the old man gasp as if for breath, while he threw himself amid the crowd, but I thought that the intense agony of his countenance had in some measure abated. His head again fell upon his breast. He appeared as I had seen him at first. I observed that he now took the course in which had gone the greater number of the audience, but upon the whole I was at a loss to comprehend the waywardness of his actions. As he proceeded, the company grew more scattered, and his old uneasiness and vacillation were resumed. For some time he followed closely a party of some ten or twelve roisterers, but from this number one by one dropped off until three only remained together, in a narrow and gloomy lane little frequented. The stranger paused and for a moment seemed lost in thought, then with every mark of agitation pursued rapidly a route which brought us to the verge of the city, amid regions very different from those we had hitherto traversed. It was the most noisome quarter of London, where everything wore the worst impress of the most deplorable poverty, and of the most desperate crime. By the dim light of an accidental lamp, tall, antique, worm-eaten, wooden tenements were seen tottering to their fall, in directions so many and capricious that scarce the semblance of a passage was discernible between them. The paving stones lay at random, displaced from their beds by the rankly growing grass. Horrible filth festered in the dammed-up gutters. The whole atmosphere teemed with desolation. Yet as we proceeded, the sounds of human life revived by sure degrees, and at length large bands of the most abandoned of a London populace were seen reeling to and fro. The spirits of the old man again flickered up, as a lamp which is near its death hour. Once more he strode onward with elastic tread. 
Suddenly, a corner was turned, a blaze of light burst upon our sight, and we stood before one of the huge suburban temples of intemperance, one of the palaces of the fiend Jinn. It was now nearly daybreak, but a number of wretched inebriates still pressed in and out of the flaunting entrance. With a half-shriek of joy, the old man forced a passage within, resumed at once his original bearing, and stalked backward and forward, without apparent object, among the throng. He had not been thus long occupied, however, before a rush to the doors gave token that the host was closing them for the night. It was something even more intense than despair that I then observed upon the countenance of the singular being whom I had watched so pertinaciously. Yet he did not hesitate in his career, but with a mad energy retraced his steps at once to the heart of the mighty London. Long and swiftly he fled, while I followed him in the wildest amazement, resolute not to abandon a scrutiny in which I now felt an interest all-absorbing. The sun arose while we proceeded, and when we had once again reached that most thronged mart of the populous town, the street of the D Hotel, it presented an appearance of human bustle and activity scarcely inferior to what I had seen on the evening before. And here, long, amid the momently increasing confusion, did I persist in my pursuit of the stranger. But as usual, he walked to and fro, and during the day did not pass from out the turmoil of that street. And as the shades of the second evening came on, I grew wearied unto death, and, stopping fully in front of the wanderer, gazed at him steadfastly in the face. He noticed me not, but resumed his solemn walk, while I, ceasing to follow, remained absorbed in contemplation. This old man, I said at length, is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds. The worst heart of the world is a grosser book than the Hortulus Anima, and perhaps it is but one of the great mercies of God that erlach sich nicht lesen. End of section 5はい、everyone、thank you for helping make January a tremendous, wonderful, gigantic month at Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Hey, we've got some Ken Height talking about Poe. We've got Ken Height and Adam Scott Glancy talking about Ligor and the Cho Cho coming up. So check that out. That's going on,、uh, should be this week, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. So listen for this audio feed. To,、uh, to check that out. And remember, rate, review, and subscribe. Give us five stars wherever you listen. Let people know about it. Review us on Facebook. Review us on Instagram. Hey, we are officially now on Spotify. So if you don't like listening to this on your computer, you don't like listening to this on your phone, And you just want to listen to it through like a speaker or something like that,、uh, you know, however you use Spotify, if You're like, man, I wish they were on Spotify. I'd listen to them more often or save it or whatever.、And、now you can. We're on Spotify. We're also everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for making January gigantic. And we look forward to seeing you in March with the cool stuff. And remember, check the show notes for links and schedules and find out everything that's going on with Badger's Drift Studios, our friends over at Sweat Drenched Press. 
the gang over at Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and of course me, DB Spitzer. Hey, check out my Instagram, PGTTCM. All right, bye.